This is the Todd Capital Millionaire Podcast, episode number 70. Uh, once I made the decision that I wanted to be successful in real estate, um, man, I, I cut out music, um, you know, like I would go running in the mornings and listen to music, but that became podcast. Like, nice. so, so if I'm in the car, if I was doing anything, if I'm reading a book, it's all real estate related. So. I'm not really sure what source gave it to me, but I knew to do that. I knew that I should go out and ask uh, for a seller credit to kind of get some repairs. Nice. With that type of- this episode of the Tide Capital Millionaire Podcast is sponsored by 17th Watches. 17th Watches aims to be a pioneer in watchmaking style, creating a perfect union between simplicity and class. At 17th Watches, time is the only luxury. You can find 17th Watches at 17th dash watches.com sellerfinancingonly.com do you own a home condominium apartment building or land free and clear have you ever considered selling it well not just sell it you hold the mortgage and become the bank welcome to the world of seller financing instead of the potential buyer getting a mortgage from a bank or credit union you give them the mortgage you set the interest rate the buyer pays you every month for 5, 10, 15, or 30 years, whatever you and the buyer agree on. Seller financing only. Join us today. Have you wanted to invest in the booming Detroit real estate market but didn't know where to start? Have you heard about the amazing prices to purchase properties but are scared to jump because you didn't have a team? Well, this is the perfect tour for you. Asia Denton of Denton Construction Services and the Detroit Property Shop will show you the real Detroit. The good, the bad, and the downright ugly. We will tour historic up-and-coming neighborhoods and see a few houses that are in the process of being rehabbed. We will also tour some homes that are for sale and will be able to make offers on the spot. The cost is $1,500 per person. There's limited seating available. However, there is an early bird special for the first 10 people to sign up that is half off. $750. The event will be held on the weekend of September 19th through the 20th and will consist of a meet and greet, a networking social, and a big tour of the city. Feel free to contact Asia by phone or text today at 313-288-8051 or at 1-888-225-1533. Make sure to let them know that Todd Capital sent you. So this is this is the Todd Capital Millionaire Podcast. This is episode number 70. My name is Charles Oglesby, also known as Todd Millionaire. I'm the founder and the director of the Todd Capital Investment Club that has 220 members, but we have like 75 people that have expressed interest that we need to finish onboarding. So be crossing that 300 threshold pretty soon. Excited about that. Also the founder of Todd Acquisitions. We own three cash flow properties. We'll be having number four finish on the rehab pretty soon in about two weeks. Thank you all for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to share the stories of successful African-American business owners and investors because they exist. And it's funny is I was watching a Jay Morrison podcast and he was interviewing the guy who invested like 40,000 into his, into the Tulsa real estate fund. And he was saying that he owned like, like six, I think like eight doors. And there's so many people out there that we don't even know exist that are doing things that people think aren't possible. So the purpose of the show is really to show you guys that there are people that look like you that are doing what you want to do. They're successful at it. And there's nothing that's really holding you back. Today, we have a brother named Jason Stubblefield. He owns, I want to say over 75 units. 
I'm not sure the exact number, but I know he's doing big things. He's in the uh, D.C. area. Uh, welcome to the show, man. Uh, thank you, man. Thanks for having me on, man. It's an honor. And, uh, you know, as I was telling you before we got started, man, I definitely appreciate what you're doing. A lot of people out here talking about the rain, forecasting the rain, but uh, you're one of the few people out here building the art, man. So appreciate that. Thank you. That's cool. I, I never heard that before. That's really cool. So, I mean, tell us something about your background. Where are you from? Um, I mean, how did you get to become the person that you are today? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm from Tennessee. So um, right after I finished high school, I joined the military. So I did four years in the Marine Corps. Um, after that, I went to school, University of Memphis, got my degree in computer science, uh, came to the Washington, D.C. area, and I've been doing government contracting uh, for a while in this area. And so I invested into some single families. Um, got a few of those going and I kind of took a break. And after that, I wanted to to start investing again. And I thought I was going to end up buying like a, like a duplex or a quad or something like that. And uh, it turned out I, I bought like a 34 unit uh, apartment building back in Tennessee. And then just recently in April, closed on another 48 units uh, in a neighboring town in uh, Kentucky. So those are the two investments that I have going right now. I'm looking to continue growing the portfolio. And uh, yeah, I like multifamily, man. It's where I'm gonna, gonna press my head at. Nice. So, man, there's so much that, you, that you're that you saying. I mean, for first and foremost, you're investing from out of state. And so that's something we definitely wanna talk about. But before we even get there, I wanna ask you, what drew you to real estate? What made you wanna go and buy a property and kind of go that route? So it was it was that book, man, the purple book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> uh, my uncle was the one who put me on to it. He was he was just raving about it, and uh, I actually went to the library. I didn't even buy it, but but um, I actually didn't couldn't get the Rich Dad Poor Dad. I got the Rich Dad Poor Dad Retire Young and Rich. And once I read that book, I was like, wow. Um, so that's what got me started, got me looking into real estate. And that was around 2008, mm -hmm. 2009, somewhere in there. So did you buy before the crash or after the crash? No, so I was fortunate because I was looking during the crash. Okay. Um, and I just wasn't able to get my hands on any property. So I had went to like a, a wholesale and boot camp and I was trying to find properties. I was making some offers, but uh, fortunately, none of those got accepted, and then I didn't get a property until 2009. So it probably took me about a good year, year and a half, just looking for property. So you were able to buy low. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's cool. And in the DC area, it was very competitive at that time because you had all these investors who were, you know, they were just looking at chops at the market. They were coming in buying, you know, putting in cash offers on deals. So me being a first time buyer, right? I'm already scared. I'm trying to make a good investment. And uh, yeah, it was, it was difficult. Yeah. Were your first properties in the DC area? You were buying yes. close to home? Yes. Yep. And, and, and do you feel like that's important for people who are starting out to be close to what they're buying or are you kind of over that now? You don't necessarily, I wouldn't say that you have to be close, but you do have to understand the market. Uh, so with me, I had a plan, right? So my 
my first purchase in this area was um, to house hack. That was the reason, because when I first moved to this area, uh, the cost of living is very high and maybe something similar to what you experienced in Southern California. So um, I was renting out a basement. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a few years and that allowed me to save some money. But uh, once I thought about it, I was like, wow, you know, this guy who owns the place is racking up with, uh, you know, with me and the other tenants there. So my first purchase was with the intentions of being able to do that. Nice, nice. So I think, I'm not sure if you just said this, but you said house hack. Was that what you were talking about? Yes. Okay. And so your first property was at a FHA property or how did you get into that first property? Or you might even got a VA loan. How did you do that? I did. I did. So I got a VA loan with that. Um, I actually didn't know it at the time that, that um, I could even do that. But my first property, I mean, I may have paid $500 all in wow. uh, because the, I got, you know, 100% financing. I think I got some closing costs put in there. So, um, yeah, it was it was really advantageous to me with that deal. And then I moved in a friend of mine, and he stayed with me. He paid a portion of the rent, so uh, my my portion was very low, allowing me to, get, to grow further. Yeah. So basically, what you did is you went from renting a basement to owning the house, and then probably either either living for free, close to free, or even cash flowing it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's cool. And so. What was the what what did the next step look like for you? So right after because I was able to get into that that first property, um, you know, for almost no money out of pocket, I bought another deal um, in the same area close to that, and that was just a cash flow play. Yep. And um, yeah, so with with those two properties, I definitely was living rent free, um, mm. cash flowing with the with the second property and. Uh, you know, I was, I thought I was on my way to just, you know, continue with real estate. And then, you know, I, I met a great lady and, and we got married the following year. So the next purchase was actually our residence. Family home, yeah. Where we stayed, correct. Oh, so at this point in time, you had one single family as a, uh, a house hack. The second, that was just a, a rental property. And then the third one is your actual residence. Right, and when so I did, moved, we we just transitioned the house hack into a full a full room. Right, nice, nice, interesting, interesting. Um, so for because I think we kind of skipped over it a little bit, but how did the numbers look on that first house? Like purchase price, rental income, how did that break out? So that was okay, it was two thousand nine. It was one hundred thirty five thousand dollars. So. Um, the the rent for that I think when I first started off was about fourteen hundred, fourteen fifteen hundred or something. So I was right at the one percent rule, and uh, that was you know that was the time when you could get properties here. Now you can find anything like that. Right, right. What's the one percent rule for people who don't know? So it's it's a rule of thumb that says you want to at least get one percent of the purchase price and rental income. Uh, per month. So a hundred thousand dollar property, you want that to be you want to get a thousand dollars a month in, in rent. Right. Right. And generally speaking, you should be okay to cash flow. Mm -hmm. How were you able to finance that second property if you already had a VA loan? Um, like um how yes. what what yeah, what kind of loan was it? How'd you get the down payment, all that stuff? 
Um, so that one was a little tricky uh, because I actually ended up buying the houses at the same time. So, um, but doing that, I had the VA loan going, and then I also was in the process of purchasing the, the rental, and that, because I didn't have to use the money on the down payment for my VA loan, I was able to use that money on the second house. Uh, nice. Very cool. Very cool. So, I think we can talk about um, how you've acquired your other properties. One, I, I don't know how to really phrase this question, but you're investing out of state. And I think you're investing out of state for a lot of the reasons why I'm investing out of state. And that's that your current market, it's just tough to find deals, but you still want to get involved in real estate. You still think that there's opportunity out there. And so because of, I guess, the price points in your market, you're looking for, for opportunities outside of your market. Is that kind of what drew you, drove you out of the state or what, what's oh, your story? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I want to buy a property that makes sense, right? So cash flow is the name of the game. And uh, in the area I'm in, you know, I don't buy for appreciation. I wouldn't encourage anybody to buy for appreciation. Right. And so if there is no cash flow, then, you know, just move to another market. A lot of times right. driving an hour, driving two hours, you, you can find some good deals. But Tennessee was home for me. So um, I was already visiting that area, you know, a few times a year. So it just makes sense. Nice. And so you went from single family homes to multifamily homes. And so for people who don't know, of course, like multifamily, typically the definition of multifamily is either duplex or better, but sometimes they'll consider it like five units or above. Doesn't really make a difference in that definition, but you went from single family homes and did you see appreciation in those, in those homes that you had before? Have those appreciated significantly? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Because DC is kind of booming right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So how did you... How did you go from the mindset of buying single family homes to buying multifamily homes? What caused that shift? Um, it really wasn't something that I thought was gonna happen, right? I thought I was gonna buy maybe a duplex, maybe a fourplex. And the way this happened is that I I was sitting on the sideline for a while and then I got back into it, said, okay, I wanna do some investing. Um, the money I used was actually a home equity line credit. So I got a, a HELOC on my first property and I'm like, okay, I got this cash now. But as I'm looking for another investment, I'm like, I want to find something that will allow me to cash flow, put some money in my pocket, as well as being able to pay back this bank financing, right? And as I was going through doing that, you know, I would look at a single family. I had like a calculator I put together and like a Google sheet. And I would look at it, I was like, okay, this doesn't make sense. And I would look at a duplex and I was like, okay, it's a little better. And I would look at a, a you know, three or four unit. And I was like, okay, this is, you know, this will allow me to cash flow. So I kind of saw the numbers progress with that. Also, uh, there was a book that I read. It was it's one of those bigger pocket books. Like it might be, you know, the, the name is so long. The book on flipping and buying and renting and, and whatever it is. But, <laughs> but one of those books, it laid out a strategy. And I never had a strategy with investing. I was just like, I need to buy, right? Right, right, um, right. But once I actually put it into a strategy of saying, okay, what, if, what am I going to do? What's my plan? that's what kind of defined the the small singles so i was like okay i'm gonna buy a duplex for a quad and then i'll take a quad to an eight eight to a, you know 16 or 20. um 
so that was my mindset. And I was uh, I was looking at Memphis. I, I actually was very close to to buying uh, a four unit in Memphis, but uh, you know for whatever reason that didn't work out. And then there was this thirty four unit that uh, was right at the height of what I could afford to just get into. Uh, but the numbers look great. Mm-hmm. So I, I saw the property online a few times. I passed on it because I'm like, oh, I'm not looking for that. And then once I called and I talked to this agent, um, I got excited. I was, I was like, wow, you know, these numbers look good. This could, uh, this could be a game changer. Yeah. I like one of the things about multifamily that is attractive to me is the fact that typically if you buy a big enough property, you can cash flow yourself out of a job. Meaning that like you get a single family, you'll make four or 500 bucks. If you buy a 38 unit, typically you're gonna have enough money to have an on-site manager, an on-site maintenance man. And also kind of just work your way out of the business because at that point in time, you're not having to do any of the phone calls, any of that. It's like, it's literally a business. Is, is that what you experienced or what was your what was your experience like? So on the first one, not so much. I mean, I, I do have a, um, a full-time on-site manager, which is my dad. Um, that's that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So so um, it was more involved for me just for that reason because my dad right. he he's um, he reached a retirement age, and so when I was close to buying the property, I was like, you know, I could look for another manager or I could simply you know work with my dad. And of course, I chose to chose to keep it in the family. So um, it was a little bit more work because. I had to put together the systems, right? So mm-hmm. creating leases, uh, coming up with a policy, uh, doing evictions, that type of stuff. I, I couldn't just hand it off to somebody else. Mm-hmm. But the once it got functioning, right? So once the once my dad kind of got up to speed on what he was going to be doing, and uh, we owned the property a while, then things kind of smoothed out. Right. And now it, it's it's mostly hands off. Nice, nice. There's a lot that you said in there that I like. For one, I like the real estate. And just ownership in general allows you to create opportunities for people close to you. And like, that's one of my biggest passions because I mean, we can sit around and we can ask other people to like give us opportunity or let us in, but it's so much of a stronger play to do something. And then not only give your dad an opportunity, I mean, he probably didn't need opportunity, but I'm just saying like for people out there who like, you might have a cousin, you might have um, a friend who something's happened to them. And so they aren't really able to enter the job market at a level that they'd like to be at. And so through your property, you're giving them both the skills, the experience, and I mean the income, which is which is huge. And I think that like keeping it in the family and doing things and building things for your community is it's like one of the priorities and one of the reasons why I preach business and entrepreneurship so much. Um, the next thing that you said that I liked is that you got the experience. And so that first property was kind of like learning and I'm pretty sure a lot think you had your systems in place for that second deal. So you knew you needed to do this, 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 this. And so I think that that's kind of one of the benefits of not just brushing off the, the management and actually taking it on and doing the work. Because then, I mean, you learn how to do it. You probably critique how you're doing things. You perfect how you're doing things. And then you're just like teaching and then you're just like creating that system and handing that system off. So that's one of the things that I always say. People say, oh, you need a property manager. And... I think that you do yourself a disservice because it's in part the money that you make off of the deal, but also the experience and the knowledge that you gain that helps you do better deals in the future. 
Right. I mean, it's hard for you to know what a property manager is doing if you've never done the job. So there is some benefit to it, you know, to know if you're being overcharged, to know if the systems are, are correct, to know if you're being, uh, you know, you can be taken advantage of. But some of these property management companies use you, the owner, as you are the income. I mean, the, the tenants are only a fraction of the income, but they right. really make their money off of uh, renovating your units and turnover costs. So, yeah, um, yeah you, you really want to make sure that you understand that part of the game and that your interests are aligned, correct? That's true. That's true. What are some tips that you have? Well, let's. how did you finance that deal? How, how were you able to um, put that package, that finance package together? So on the first deal, um, what I did was this was a highly distressed property. So let me say that. So this was, even though it was 34 units, it was about 50% vacant. Um, and it was in desperate need of upgrades and to change the tenant base. So this was a major reposition on this first deal. So uh, as I mentioned, I had just about enough money to be able to get into the deal, but not really enough money to be able to do the renovations as I, you know, that it needed. So what I did was I got 25, um, I had to come up with 25% mm -hmm. down payment. I got 75% finance another bank. Right. With that 25% that I had to come up with, I got 10% on the financing. Nice. So that allowed me to just have to come up with 15%. Nice. So between that and I also negotiated to get a seller credit for some repairs. So, um, yeah, th that's how the capital stack looked on that person. Nice. Uh, how did you find out about the 10% owner finance? Or is that something you read in the book or that's just, how did that come about? Yeah, so I've, um, once I made the decision that I wanted to be successful in real estate, um, man, I, I cut out music, um, you know, like I would go running in the mornings and listen to music, but that became podcasts. Like, nice. so, so if I'm in the car, if I was doing anything, if I read the book, it's all real estate related. So I'm not really sure what source gave it to me, but I knew to do that. I knew that I should go out and ask uh, for a seller credit to kind of get some repairs. Nice. with that type of property so yeah luckily that was a that was a big help yeah do you think that made you sharper and and just like across the board because you're so immersed in the space oh without a doubt because yeah. you know you, you're constantly feeding yourself uh positive information with real estate and then you're learning from other people so you're hearing the success stories of somebody else what they've done, what they've overcome. So it just motivates you to kind of go, you know, do your thing, kind of pay your own path. Right. I think that's one of the things that I always, I think about. It's like, I don't know if not for podcast, if not, mostly if not for podcast books, I read a ton of books, but I feel like podcasts really take it to that next level. Um, I've listened to all the bigger pockets podcasts. Honestly, I think that even just having my own podcast has made me kind of take the leap. And it's given me more confidence in what I'm doing just because I talk to so many dope people. And the reason why we're investing in the market that we are at the price point is because of a podcast guest. And so every little guest is in, in, impacts me in certain ways, in certain ways unseen, kind of like for you. It's like, I don't know where it comes from. I just know that it's there. And if not for that, I mean, who knows if you, if, if, if you would be doing what you're doing or all that good stuff. So I think podcasts are definitely a hack. That's cool. Um, what was going through your mind when you were doing that first deal? I mean, because 
that was a, a big leap where where you uh just kind of like let's see how it goes or what did that look like oh i'm scared <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, uh no doubt about it i mean i knew i knew enough i knew it was a good deal and that's that's kind of how the investor that i am uh if i know it's a good deal then let's go ahead and go for it so um, I had several contingency plans, you know, like this did work out, but um, it was definitely bigger than anything that I had done. And I was tackling, tackling it for the most part by myself. Yeah. I think that's good. You said there that you had multiple contingency plans. It's like you want to enter a deal knowing that there's several ways you can make it successful. You don't just right. want to be betting on like, oh, I'm going to come in, I'm going to do X and raise rents. Cause it's like, what if that doesn't happen? Then what, what's your other, what's your plan B, C, D? It's kind of like they right. said, like you want to enter the door and know that there's like four exits or something. So that's really right. cool. Um, what did the reposition look like? How did you rehab the property? And how did you actually, how did you get the financing to rehab the property? And then what did, what all did you have to do to, to reposition it? So that was, um, that was part of, the, part of the learning experience with the property. So when I first bought it, um, I'm not sure how much your listeners know about how commercial properties work, but they are, the value of them is determined based on the income that they produce. So when I got this property, it's 50% vacant. I knew that roughly at filling about five to six of those units, it would, um, it would increase the net operating income enough such that I can increase the value and then be able to refinance Finance. and then be able to continue the renovations. So that was the that was the plan. That's dope. Uh, That's really yeah, cool. It was a, it was a cold plan, but it didn't work out like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so what happened is as I bought this property, uh, this is just one of the things that that you know you don't necessarily get in the book. Um, if you're taking on another property and tenants see that things are changing, they will leave. So at my five to six units that I'm looking to renovate, that was based on the current tenants staying there. And there were a few issues that came up. So mm -hmm. one of those being that uh, the money that I thought the property should produce, it didn't actually produce. Right. Um, they have what you call a a physical versus an economic vacancy. Mm -hmm. So um, in my numbers, I checked the tax returns. Um, you know, this was uh, this was not a very sophisticated seller or maybe he was very sophisticated, one or the other. But um, it was, you know, we had to kind of dig out the numbers to see where it was coming, where his finances were coming in at. And you, what do you mean by physical versus economic or vacancy? Um, okay, so the physical vacancy is, let's just say you've got um, 10 units and, you know, one person is, one unit is vacant, okay? So that would be a 90% physical vacancy, okay? But let's say you got the same 10 units and you have nine people that stay there, but only six of them are actually paying. So that's the economic vacancy. So even though you've got somebody, uh, you know, the, the uh, little saying is like heads in bids versus hands in wallets. So you've got heads in the bid, but they're not putting their hands in the wallet to, to make the payments. So um, when I bought that property, uh, it, would, it would have been a difficult one to, to determine, but um, 
I didn't really know that the economic legacy would be like that. And what the current owner was did, was doing, uh, in my opinion, was as people turned over, you know, he would just fill it as quickly as possible with another tenant to keep his occupancy up. Of course, when I purchased it, I wasn't going to run it like that. So as tenants left, I wasn't able to fill them with qualified tenants until right until we had them renovated and they met the income requirements like that so because of that that initial plan of hey we're just going to do this five six units and then you know get the refinance and you know i'm, I'm skipping uh, that didn't work out because we lost tenants so filling up you know four or five just got us back to a little bit over square one so it, it took longer it was a little bit more challenging for that reason so how did the strategy change? Did the strategy change or it just took longer? The timeline changed? Yeah, so at that point I had to find some money, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I need to continue to renovate the units, uh, but you know, our, our vacancy was too high. So um, I was able to reach out and um, I started pulling money, money in. So um, I ended up tapping into like my 401k. I did a loan against that. Um, and I just, I just used that money to kind of um, give me a buffer to myself. Mm-hmm. And then that got me through um, a few more units. And then at that point, I did a refinance into some more favorable financing that uh, was interest only. And so it also gave me an interest only loan and money to continue the repairs. Nice. Yeah, so, so that's, that's how it worked out. Nice. Um, I think what's, what's cool about this story is you kind of just like figured it out as you went, but also I feel like everything that you went through, and maybe this is an incorrect assumption, I think it made you better for deal two. How do you feel that your systems and your strategy going forward, based off of the lessons from deal one, helped you do deal two better? Um... Definitely, because you know what to look for. Um, and one of the, the key takeaways that I got is just that uh, commercial real estate is a different ball game. You know, there isn't there isn't anybody to, to kind of look over. I mean, it's not that way in, in residential either, but the business is really based on the numbers of the property and within the leases and within the operations. So if you don't, do your homework to make sure that you catch certain things a owner can make things appear a certain way on paper yeah. and then they're not that way um in reality so in deal number two it kind of taught me like okay let's make sure right you know yes you're going to say the property produces this much money but i want to make sure that i do a better job of due diligence to make sure that this money is, is actually coming in and that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. I was like, if you get burned once, you're likely not going to get burned twice. And so you're going to make sure that like, even if you have to be a jerk, I was at a point where we had bought a property, we inherited a tenant. And the only thing we saw was um, the lease. And I was like, I don't want to see the lease. I want to see the application. I want to see like who this person is before I buy the property. And that might seem crazy, but like, I don't want to, I'm not gambling. I don't want to buy the property. And I'm like, oh, that's who this person is. It's like, I'm gonna like, normally like the first before I did that, I wouldn't wouldn't do that because I was like, "Ah, I don't know if I should, I don't know if I'm privy to that information. But now it's like, I need everything. Like 
I need bank statements. I need to see that they're actually paying you tax returns, everything. And it's like, if you're giving them a significant amount of money to buy a property, you should, they, they should be prepared to show you everything. And like, at first I was kind of like, I would say shy because I hadn't done that many deals. And so I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I shouldn't ask. I don't want to come off as unprofessional. I don't want to come off as though like I'm new to this. So like, let me just kind of play it cool. <laughs> and so like, now that I, now that I did it and I'm like, nah, like I need to see, I need to see everything. So I think that that's why like, we all want to get rich. We all want to do deals and do that slam dunk but there's like a learning process to it. And your first deal at 38 units, it's probably doing really well now, but it taught you the lessons that are gonna help you just dominate going forward and approach those now 40 unit deals way more confidently, way more professionally, way more as if you're there than if you just like sat around waiting to do that first deal perfect. So I think that that's kind of like, that's really one of the, the center pieces of this show is like, just do it. Do it, struggle through it, make mistakes through it, and you'll likely figure out a way to do it right. One of the things, one of the things that scares me about multifamily, and we can have this conversation, is that like I feel like it's super popular. And for me, the kind of investor that I am, I hate doing popular stuff. Um, how did you protect against that? Because I mean, in certain instances, I feel like, especially in California, especially in DC. Like, it doesn't even make sense to buy multifamily property out here because the cap rates are so low. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, part of me is scared to go to other markets and invest in multifamily because I don't know if it's going to turn against me. Um, what's, what's your thoughts on that? With it being popular, I just think with the amount of information, you know, like we both mentioned the podcast and how influential that, that is, um, I think that it makes sense as an, an investment. So a lot of people are flocking to that market. Um, but I'm not necessarily concerned because I don't, I don't really try to live in a, in a life, a life of scarcity, right? So I feel like there's a, enough deals out there, regardless. But the the deal is going to be in the numbers of whatever you're looking at so it doesn't matter if there's 20 offers on it um if it's deal then you'll be able to see that if it's not a deal then you should pass not mm -hmm. i think unfortunately i don't know what some people are paying for right now or how they're going to make money off of it um but you know that's the life that we're living right now in multi-family yeah. space um but yeah it's just you know there's certain things that you can do certain um niches within it that you can try to focus on and try to narrow that narrow that out and uh you know a lot of people are kind of following the same the same path right so there's like um so like a dallas or or an atlanta you know there are good deals there but it's kind of like everybody is talking to these these markets because they they all meet certain criteria that uh, you know some pundits say you should be investing in yeah and so I guess that that's kind of how you've hedged against it is you're in a market that's underserved yeah. and, and and you bought distressed. You're not buying something that's turnkey. You're not buying at the top of the market. So right. I think that that's definitely huge. That just speaks to the contingency plans that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So with the, um, with the second one, with the second deal, it was, um, I ran into another problem, right? So um, all my money's in the first deal. And I was, you know, after we kind of got settled and I'm starting to 
um, you know, we're starting to get into a flow. Units are getting turned over. My dad has kind of picked up what should be happening as a property manager. And now I'm just kind of sitting on my hands, you know, letting this thing run. And, you know, I got antsy. I'm like, I'm not doing anything right now. And so um, that's what kind of catapulted me to go do another deal because I was I was basically waiting on this refinance and it took longer than I expected. I'm like, I'm just gonna have to sit here till this refinance happens. But um, it, you know, I reached out to some people and to some groups I'm involved with and they were like, well, you know, getting 50% of some deals is better than getting 100% of. So at that point, you that's said, when I looked into you cut out, but you cut out, but you said 50% of a good deal was better than 100% of no deal, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. And so right, you said so you reached out to Yeah, so I was involved with some groups, with some multifamily groups, um, and just kind of seeing like what are what are other people doing? And it was a consensus. Uh, it was actually a Facebook group and I, I kind of threw out the question and it was a consensus with the responses that you should go do another deal. You know, you're just gonna need to raise money for it. And um, I, I'm the type of person, I don't think I've even borrowed a hundred dollars in my life, right, from anybody. So um, the whole concept of raising money from anybody was uh, was very scary to me. Um, but that's what kind of led me to, to go to syndication because it was needed. If I was gonna do another deal, I was gonna have to, you know, raise money for it. So I turned the second one into a syndication. And how did you find the investors to invest alongside of you? Um, so I got a coach. Um, after the after the first deal and after I became a parent, I was going to have to raise money to do another investment. Um, I was like, I'm not going to have anybody's money invested with me without having somebody more experienced and more knowledgeable than me looking over my shoulder. So joining that network was beneficial twofold because one, it gave me a heightened level of knowledge about investing in multifamily. And secondly, it gave me access to a group of people who were concentrating on multifamily and capital, right? So that allowed me to to raise some money out of that group as well as like a, a few people that I knew. And did you guys structure that as an LLC or was it a different type of structure? So that was a syndication model. So it was um, it was an LLC where I was part owner and the investors, the limited partners, had a percentage ownership. So was it a like a general partnership LP type structure or was it just a strict? That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's what. That's exactly it. Yeah. And so the people that you're working with are these uh, just like sophisticated investors or are they accredited investors or does it's, that make a difference? Um, it's a mix. Well, it does make a it does make a difference in the in the way that you raise money. So you can do um, like a 506B or 506C offer. And depending on which one of those you choose, um, you can do sophisticated investors and accredited investors. Yeah. Or you can only do accredited investors. How do you determine if they're sophisticated? You, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. How do I determine if they're sophisticated? Yeah, because I mean, well, 
that's my that's my issue. <laughs> so accredited investors, we typically know what that is. Accredited investors are um, like I think it's like two fifty income or a half million income over a million net worth, not including the house. Sophisticated is a little bit different. I don't think it's even an asset requirement or an income requirement. It's really just a matter of do they understand real estate? Is that correct mm -hmm. or am I off? No, no, that's spot on. From the attorneys I talked to, it really seems like uh, there is no concrete criteria that somebody has to meet. But yeah. if you're going to uh, sign the documents for a private placement memorandum, then you're going to have to say why you consider yourself sophisticated. Um, and really it just boils down to if something were to go wrong and you ended up in a courtroom, you have these documents to say, this person said, you know, they weren't being taken advantage of. They are sophisticated enough to understand investments and they made this investment, you know, of their own knowledge. Mm -hmm. Nice. So the SEC doesn't want you just going around a 90 year old grandma and, you know, taking that money and they, they have no mm -hmm. idea what you want to do with it. So yeah. that's the reason behind that. Yeah. Um, so how much money did you raise? Did you raise just the equity for the down payment or did you raise the entire purchase price in the rehab? So it was the purchase price and the rehab. Uh, it's about half a million dollars that I had to raise. Okay. And um, did you did that property require any um, like improvements? Yes. What so did you guys do to that one? What I liked about this property is, is one of the lessons that I learned from the first property is that you can make money in real estate and multifamily real estate without having to do such a distressed property as I did in the first deal. So this one was um, this one was like 96% occupied on day one. So um, there wasn't a high vacancy to deal with, but we could go in and renovate the units and still get a rent premium. And that rent premium on every unit over time would add up to be a significant amount of value to this property. Right. So you, how many units was this again? This was 48 units. 48 units. So let's, you walk in, you buy a 48 unit property. What does the, the monthly income look like? And then how does that get distributed to investors? Um, so it was pulls in about 22,000 22, a month. Um, out of that, you know, once we once we pay all our fees, management expenses, um, it'll probably boil down to um, somewhere right near like around eight eight to ten thousand per month mm -hmm. in cash flow, and then we distribute that on a seventy thirty basis. Wow. So thirty wow. percent wow. to the general partner and uh, I like seventy percent to the limited partners. Nice, that's really cool. Wow. And with that, so with that, the limited partners still get return on their money of, uh, we started at, at about 9%, right? So they mm -hmm. get a 9% cash and cash return year one. And then as we continue to do these rent raises, you know, it, it pumps up to the point that we would look to refinance or sell by year five. So is that a situation where you have like your the uh, preferred return and then above the preferred return you do the split or is that split factored into that preferred or the 9% return? No, so that so that's we're not doing a preferred return on this property. 
Okay. So the the projection of the nine percent cash on cash is based on the seventy percent um, cash flow distribution to the investors. Okay, got it. That's pretty cool because I feel like, and then correct me if I'm wrong, you might have figured out a way to finance this property one hundred percent and still get cash flow because you brought the deal, you put together the package, all that stuff. Yes. Nice. That's really cool. That's really cool. And so you have the fourth, the, the second property, the first property, and you still have your small, your single families too, right? Right. How do you manage all of that yourself? Do you have people helping you do the numbers? You have people working for you? You have a team? Uh, no, I'm about ten minutes from my single family, so mm. um, I don't really do much with it. Uh, I've got a great tenant there so that um it does require a little bit of time but not much and then the the other two the the managers in place so my dad is a property manager and then on the the other 48 unit there was a professional property manager on that one so um you know people don't call me which is you know outside of my single family nobody calls me the manager will call me if there's something that needs my attention but um, that's one thing I like about it because it allows me to stay focused on where I want right. to grow the business. Right. So what does an average day look like for you with, I mean, that much going on? I mean, what, what's, what's a day to day look like for you? Um, so I'm, I'm still working as a software developer. So, um, I work from home, but, um, typical day is I'm, I'm up by five fifteen. I do do the miracle morning. So. I, I try to get all that in, get a run in, um, drop my drop my daughters off, and my goal is to be back at my house by 8 a.m. All right, and then from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. is business only. I try to cut my phone off. I try to uh, block every distraction I could potentially have, and just devote that block to doing nothing but real estate related activities. And then uh, at 10 o'clock, you know, then it switches and, and uh, you know, I do the nine five stuff. Nice. So was there anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked? No, I think you covered it for the most part. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, hopefully giving people insight into the business and how it works. Cool. So these are the wrap up questions. I'm going to fire these off at you. Actually, I have questions from Instagram. So what one thing I like about questions like this is um, even if we repeat, sometimes it's good to pull out more value. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through. I think it's only like four or five questions. Let me see All where right. they are. All right. So the first question is, what do you think is the best financing option? That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's, 100% let's owner financing and 0% interest. <laughs> if you were to do a deal, if you whatever your next deal is, let's say you want to buy whatever your next deal is, how do you plan to structure that financially? Are you going to do the similar to what you've done? Do you think that this indication was a good way to go about it? Um, yes. How that's you think you're just going to go that route? Yes, because I want to go bigger. Uh, so. With, with that, then syndication is definitely one of the people who are out doing you know, 250 units that 
they are syndicating these deals. There are some guys who have deep pockets like that, but uh, but um, that would be the goal. Yeah. So I would look to continue to raise money. When you, how, how, man, this is, I want to ask this question in podcast form, but I'm just going to ask it in how I want to ask it. So my question is how much were the legal fees to set up that uh, syndication, but also with the syndication, did you just kind of front the money and then get it back out of the deal? Or was that just like out of pocket cost for you? Um, yeah, so the first part of your question is about, it cost me about $8,000 with the legal fees. Um, and, the, and the second part of the question, as a syndicator, uh, you have to front all the upfront costs uh, of a deal until you close it. Right, so the earnest money deposit, the legal fees, um, any travel expenses, any expenses associated with like doing an appraisal, that type of stuff, that comes out of the syndicator's pocket. But you are also, um, you can structure the deal what you get what's called an acquisition fee. And so this is uh, this is similar to like, you know, some financial advisor put together a package, like they would take some fee based on, you know, how the portfolio would um, perform. So the acquisition fee is where you can recoup some of the money that you spent as well as you kind of get made whole, right? So the money that you you put into the deal, that would be coming back because that would all be put into closing costs. Yeah. And then you would have an acquisition fee on top of that. How do you feel about that? I know a lot of times people, they'll criticize syndicators who will do something like that. And they'll say, oh, uh, they're charging all these fees. I like what I heard on the Jay Morrison podcast today. He was talking about how like you want the person who's putting the deal together. You want the person who's syndicating the deal to be incentivized to make sure that it performs, to make sure it's a good investment. Not so much that you're just trying to nickel and dime them and make them like not make any money and just kind of work for you for free. Do you think that a lot of those fees are warranted or do you think that, um, which, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Um, I think that it definitely should be compensated. I think from the work that it, that it takes to put a deal together, um, you know, it's a lot. We didn't really dig into to what all that entails, but there is a lot in putting it together. There is a lot of work that goes involved into uh, digging through the financials and making sure that this right. is a sound investment. With that, um, the way I kind of view things is like there's a, there's a hierarchy here. There's the investors come first, the uh, tenants to the property, they come second, and then me as a deal organizer or a syndicator come last. Right. So you always want to make sure that anytime we have a deal that we're looking at something that is going to be beneficial to the investors first. And then out of that, it's like, okay, is there enough room here to make a fee, right? To kind of put something else together because, uh, you know, we're all doing this to make a return, the syndicator included. Right. You know, right. maybe some people take too much, but honestly, if I'm investing in a deal and you can give me a nice return on my money, but you're able to get, hey, just good job, good job to you. Yeah. The crazy part about it is, there's so many things that I tell people are actually like a form of group economics or a syndication and banks do it all the time. Banks take multiple deposits and they lend it out to somebody who's doing a deal, but they pay their salaries, they pay their staff, they pay for the buildings, 
And so you might not see it, but the fees are being taken from your money based off of the net return that they get by lending out your money. So it's like, you shouldn't expect anybody to work for free. Um, yeah. Cool, let me get back to these questions. All right, so this question is, how did you find good contractors? It's not easy, um, but on, on my deals, what I did is I hired, I had about three contractors going at the same time. The good thing with multifamilies, I could, I could say, hey, you take these three units, you take these three units and tell another contractor, you take these three. Um, and then from that, you can kind of see, all right, well, you know, who did who did the best job, who finished on time. Uh, you know, it's really a process of elimination. Right, I like it, I like it. So we already kind of asked this question, but maybe there's something we can pull out of it. But the question is, did you use traditional loans or hard money lenders? And which do you prefer? No, with this, I didn't do any hard money loans. And I would be very cautious about doing a hard money loan on a multifamily. Uh, hmm. Just because the timing can be slower. So you really have to be positive about, you know, how long you're going to be in a deal before you're able to get out of that, that hard money loan. Um, you know, some people do it. But traditional financing is, is probably the, the best money you're going to be able to get. Um, about 75, 80% financing. Uh, that's that's what you can look for with a, you know, fairly decent interest rate. All right, I think we got them all. All right, this question is, what is your cap rate on? Well, I'll ask it this way, and we'll ask it for both properties. What was the cap rate when you purchased them? And then what is the cap rate now that you've repositioned them? On the first one, I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. um, just because that one, it, it varied, right? So I had an initial cap rate where I was like, okay, um, we were looking at, I probably got it at maybe like a, a 13 or 14 cap. I mean, it was super high, right? But that's because it was highly distressed. Um, but then with that, a higher cap rate usually means more risk. So right. um, the risk was associated with it. And, and that's why um, there were the problems that there were with it. On the second property, we went in at a, a little over an eight cap um, with the ability to, to uh, grow that of course as the income increases mm, nice cool so i still have a bunch of more questions not a bunch more but i still have more questions but we'll try to go through them quick this is the these are really the last questions these are the wrap-up questions all right so um the first question is what do you think keeps people from starting fear right it's all fear-based right it's um there's a lot that you may not necessarily know, but you just gotta be willing to step out over there and know as much as you can and make the best decision that, that you can with your, what you've got, right? Yeah, dope. What was your most memorable deal? Um, It'll probably be the first, um, the 34 unit, just because it was, um, the biggest thing I had done, the biggest leap that I had made, and where I learned from. Yeah. What did you guys do to celebrate, like when you first bought that property? Um, nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> because um, with that, you know, it was a long time of trying to get that deal closed. 
I finally closed. I was like, nice. You know, I did this. And immediately after that, there's processes to put together. There's units that need to be renovated. There's interviews with contractors. And it was just, there was no time to just say, you know, hey, let's, let's go celebrate. So yeah. it's just time to work. What was your most difficult deal and how did you get through it? Um, I would probably also say that the 34 unit. Um, that one was, was difficult because there was a lot of unexpected that happened. Um, I got through them by reaching out to other people who had, who had been in a similar situation, uh, reading, trying to get education and, and just um, thinking really just right. like what what can I do in this situation where I'm out at right now and how do I go to where I like to be yeah I um I feel like that's some of the best thinking you get is when you you have to find a solution like right. that's you're going to do the most research you're going to read the most books listen to podcasts with a different ear talk to more people ask more questions find more connections and I think that that's a lot of the value in, in, in doing a deal as opposed to thinking about doing a deal or even sometimes reading about doing a deal is I find that you become more creative when you have to become more creative. When you're sitting on the sideline, you're just like, ah, I'll just use hard money. It's nothing. And then when you get out there and you're out there putting out apps and people are denying you, but you still got to get something done, you'll find a way. And I think that that is a lot of the value in doing a deal is like, you really bring out who you are when you're in the middle of trying to reposition a 34 unit or even flip a single family home. I agree 100%. What is your best real estate advice? Create positive habits. You know, um, I think that the way I see things is like, um, almost like a, a number line or a straight line, right? On the far left side of that line, you have ultimate failure, right? Uh, just where you don't want to be. On the far right of that, you have ultimate success and whatever you want in your career, where it's going to be. You are where you are right now. And whether you go towards failure or whether you go towards success, it's going to be based on your daily habits. So as long as you continue to make progress every day, I feel like you will, you will succeed. It's only a matter of time. Nice. I, I agree with that statement. That's one thing I always try to tell people. Like, as long as you do the right stuff, it's kind of like a foregone conclusion. It's, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. So that's really cool. What is your favorite business book? Business book, I would say the one thing with Gary Keller. Why? Um, because it, it keeps you focused and I evaluate books on things that, that, um, change me. So with that book, it, it really made me want to focus on time blocking. So when I told you about my schedule every day, I'm trying to make sure that I get to that eight to 10 so I can just block that and do, do real estate. And that's probably one of the best business books. And yeah, I don't know. I'll give you another one. It's it's maybe not a business book, but uh, The Alchemist, I think by Paulo Coelho. Um, I read that at least once a year. It's just, it gives you so many, it's like proverbial in, in nature, but uh, with the storyline, it just gives you so much information. Yeah. Who is somebody in business that you look up to and why? Oh, um, right off top, I would say Joe Fairless. 
um, because he's in the industry that that I am. If people don't know him. He's a he's another um, entrepreneur, apartment investor, doing big things. And uh, with talking with him, I really realized that he's he's almost like a machine. You know, he he functions. He he does exactly what what he says he'll do, and I I admire that about. Him. I don't know how that guy does a podcast every day. I don't know how he finds that many people to talk to, how he finds the time to edit it. That's impressive. Yeah, that, like, that systems, uh, the systems that he has in place with, yeah. you know, even being able to achieve that is something that is extraordinary. Last question is, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth is the ability to afford to do what you put on this earth to do. So if you are, if you are meant, you have some passion, you need to be able to have the finances to be able to pursue that with 100%. And as soon as you have that, that, uh, that ability, then I feel like you are welcome. Nice. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We uh, talked about a lot of different things. We talked about single family homes. We talked about multifamily homes, talked about syndication. I think we had a more in-depth conversation on syndication, which was pretty good. Um, we learned a lot about how you got started and just like just pushing through that struggle, even though you had a pretty smooth path, I would say, and you scaled to what, 90 units? Uh, almost 80. It wasn't that smooth. It probably sounded a lot smoother (laughs) on this podcast than it actually was, but but yeah, thanks for having me, man. I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. Where can people find out uh, more about you or find you on Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else you reside on the internet? Um, the best way if you want to contact me will be through email. Um, that's at snscapitalpartners at gmail.com. Cool. Yeah, so that's the best. Cool. Or if anybody, if, if you want to reach out and just talk, I'll get my number out. It's uh, reach out. It's uh, 571-409-1525. Cool, cool. So this is episode number 70. I hope I said 70 in the beginning, but if I didn't, I meant to say episode 70. I think we capped off 70 with probably the person that owns the most units uh, in our podcast history. So uh, I definitely appreciate you for coming on. I I appreciate you for being flexible with uh, just all we had going on to get to this point. So if anybody is interested in joining the investment club, you know where to find us at membership at capitaltod.com. I'm excited because we're not stopping. The goal is to completely redevelop the market that we're in. The goal is to scale, get into larger properties, hopefully even get into commercial properties like actual like business type commercial properties, strip malls type stuff. That's my goal. Um, anybody listening to this show, I just think it's so dope that we're finding people who are creating wealth for their family, not just for their immediate family, but for their heirs' heirs. And that's the power of business ownership and real estate ownership and investing is it's not even just about you. Like everything that he's done benefits everybody who comes after him. So they're already starting off with that, that privilege that everybody wants to say that they don't have, like his kids have privilege and that's cause he just did the right stuff. You can do the right stuff. Just take action. My name is Charles Oglesby, also known as top millionaire episode number 70 signing off.